Thanks, Natalie. Well, good morning and welcome to church. My name is Rowan, uh, one of the pastors here. It's so great to be back. I've been uh, away on a study tour for over three weeks in Israel and Jordan and uh, a little bit of Greece, kind of looking at the biblical backgrounds of Christianity. It's been fantastic. I've been doing a master's subject in that. And uh, one of the things that I've really come across in that time is just seeing how much archaeology, history and the story of the Bible all overlap. Um, so one, one quick example, as you saw in the video last week, I was in Corinth, um, and throughout uh, the Bible, there's spoken of a man who lives in Corinth by the name of Erastus. Uh, Erastus was said to be uh, one who was in charge of public works and the treasurer of the city, but there's been no archaeological evidence of him until 1929, when they came across in Corinth, in this street, a big stone on this pavement that they kind of excavated, uh, that basically says these words, Erastus laved this payment, pavement, at his own expense. So there you have this kind of record of what probably was the Erastus that we hear about in Romans 16, Acts 19, and 2 Timothy 4, where archaeology lines up with what the Bible is saying. And that keeps happening time and time again to give us confidence uh, that the Jesus we meet in the Scriptures, that the, the story of the Scriptures lines up with actual history, which is pretty exciting, I think. So I had a great time, but it is so good to be back. So good to be back. Um, this week we begin this new series in the book of James, and I'm really excited. I used to love the book of James. It was like my favorite book. And then I got really frustrated at the book of James as I read more of Romans and the rest of the Bible. And went, how do we line these things up? And, and now I've kind of, I'm swinging back to really enjoy where James is coming from here. But one of the things that we see in James is another reason why we can trust the Bible. See, James starts this way. James 1 verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you read that. And you don't go, whoa, I trust the Bible straight away. Like, this is, this is amazing. But there's something that we, that we miss as we come through this book of James. And that is that James is most probably Jesus' half-brother. Now, I don't know how many of you think one of your siblings is God. But James does. <laughs> like, I, I, um, I keep saying to our kids, I see our kids relate to one another. None of them think each other are God. They don't listen to one another. They just fight. And I say to them, I never fought with my siblings as a child. I've never once had an argument with my siblings. That's because I don't have any. (laughs) Right? But I've noticed that within siblings, there's this real tendency that we don't think highly of them. We won't serve them. But here the half-brother of Jesus calls himself a servant, literally a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how many of you would call yourself a slave of your sibling? I think there's something inside us that says, no, I don't want to do that. So why did James... Why did James worship his brother? See, it hadn't always been that way. Early on in Jesus' ministry, uh, the family of Jesus, including James, thought he was mad. As Jesus was doing uh, his ministry throughout the Near East, uh, they came and and tried to grab him, take him away, and said he was crazy. Uh, You see that in Mark 3. they They literally say, you're crazy. But after the death of Jesus, something happens James becomes convinced that his brother is God. He actually becomes a key leader in the church in Jerusalem. So when Paul goes to the Jerusalem council in Acts 15 to 21, it's James that speaks on behalf of the Jerusalem council. It's James, Jesus' brother, that talks to Paul about whether Paul's ministry was legit or not. He's found himself as a key leader of the church. What what saw that shift? And further on, we hear in church history through a guy, a historian named Eusebius, that James was taken by people, by the scribes and Pharisees, to the high point on the temple and said, you need to recant, you need to reject that Jesus is God or we'll push you off and kill you. And these are the words that um, 
These are the words that are recorded. Uh, have a look, they're on the screen. They demand, he said this, James declared himself fully before the whole multitude and confessed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, our Saviour and Lord. And at that, they smashed his skull and killed him. He died a martyr, claiming his brother was God. Now, there's got to be something more going on there. What would make you think that, that your sibling was God? I'll tell you two things. Number one, the public, gruesome and undeniable death of Jesus at the cross is very, very clear. And and James was convinced Jesus died. But then, number two, the public appearance of Jesus. Not three minutes later, not three hours later, but three days later. Jesus rose from the dead and James saw that. Paul records that in 1 Corinthians 15. He says that Jesus appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Now, there are lots of Jameses. What makes us think that this is the right James? Well, James the apostle was already dead. Acts 12 tells us that. And so when Paul records later on in 1 Corinthians 15 that he appeared to James, he's probably talking about Jesus' brother. So it's when Jesus saw, sorry, when James saw that Jesus rose from the dead, he's convinced that his brother is Jesus. So I hope as you come along here and as you're checking out the things of God, that you can see that actually not only does the scriptures line up with history, but within the scriptures, there's this testimony that even people like Jesus' own brother believed that he was God and worshipped him as God. From that moment on, when James saw Jesus, his half-brother, risen from the dead, he served him with his whole heart through ups and downs of life. And that's why he writes this letter to us, well, letter to the churches, probably Jews, but scattered throughout the whole world um, who have become Christians. And he writes this letter to help us think through how we might keep serving Jesus in these last days, how we might face the trials and hardships, the trials that discourage. So I don't know, pray as we look at this letter together, as we move through it, that God would speak to us through his word, through Jesus' half-brother James. Let's pray. Lord, as we come here today from all different backgrounds, with all sorts of different things going on in our life, We ask that you would show us clearly what you are doing as we think about the hardships of life, the trials, the ups and downs that maybe some of us are in the middle of right now and just feel like we're clinging on to by the tips of our fingernails. We ask that you'd encourage us, that you'd comfort us, that you'd show us how good you are and send us away from your word confident and joyful that you are the God who is in control and the God who loves us. We pray you'd speak to us this morning in your son's name. Amen. Well, trials bring about discouragement. I don't know if you've ever felt that. All sorts of trials come along, hardships happen, and you just feel like, oh, why? Why is this going on? Why has this happened? I was, re- I was listening recently to um, D.A. Carson. He's a New Testament professor in the States. And he was recounting the stories of two men that he knew that were chalk and cheese in their response to trials. One man, we'll call him George, he'd become a pastor and he'd seen people become Christians and converted, and, and, and the church had grown. But then this pastor had had an affair uh, and basically stepped back from ministry and then disappeared. But then a few years later, he popped up in another church and started doing ministry there. And that church kind of grew, people became Christians. But then he had another affair and stepped back from ministry. And this happened two or three times before finally this man, George, just walked away from the church and he walked away from Jesus. A man that had gone to college with this great professor, Carson was now thrown in the Christian faith. And when George was asked why he walked away from God, he replied, because God's a liar. 
When God says he will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear, he lied. Because I could not bear the temptation and gave in every time. That was it. George's experience of God was that God lied. God tempted him more than he could bear. The temptations were too much. The trials were too strong. And you might be here today feeling the very same way. It may not be sexual temptation that's pulling you in. It might be the pain of sickness. It might be the darkness of mental health encroaching in the hurt of broken relationships. The trials of financial loss. Or maybe life's just gotten too much. And you just... You're tired, you've had enough, and you're like, God, I'm, I'm frustrated. Why are you letting this happen? And you start to doubt, is there even a God? Or if there is a God, is he good? Or if he is good, can he do anything about the situation that I'm in? And you're tempted to say, what's the point? And throw it in. Can God really make a difference? Well, for James, for George, and for all of us, the trials we face walk hand in hand with discouragement. And a desire to just give up. But we're going to see today that there is a difference. There is something that if we understand God's word properly changes the way we view these trials. I want to introduce you to another man that this Carson uh, fellow knew. His name is Norman Anderson. You might have heard of him. He and his wife became missionaries in the Near East. In World War II, because he had um, learned Arabic so fluently, he became part of the British Counterintelligence Agency. Eventually, he went on to uh, become a professor of Oriental Law at London University. He was knighted by the Queen for his efforts for the country. He was also uh, an evangelical theologian. He, he wrote books about God and what God had done. In fact, he wrote as many books about God as he did about the law in his law professorship. He was a visiting lecturer at Harvard, at MIT. He was world famous for all that he'd done. But when you hear the story of his life and his children, it makes you wonder, how did he keep on going? You see, he and his wife, Pat, had three children, and all three of them died. The first was a doctor. She, she was a medical doctor that went to the Congo as a missionary to serve God and to see people come to know Jesus. She was gang raped in Congo. Then she returned home to have some break and to do some more training so she could go back to Africa. And back to, to sharing the news of Jesus and seeing people helped and healed. So while she's studying, when she's looking forward to going back, she was walking down some stairs. She tripped, she knocked herself out, and she drowned in her own saliva, died. The second child died in almost as bizarre circumstances. The third child was a son, Hugh. He, he, was, he was brilliant. He went to Cambridge University. Uh, he was the, the, the head, the president of the student union there. Now, most of the British prime ministers go through this student union at uh, Cambridge University. And so he was in line for political power, political kind of in influence into the country. When at the age of 21, died of a brain tumour. Six cabinet ministers attended his funeral. Years later... Um, Norman's wife, Pat, she, she began to stuff, suffer from Alzheimer's. And Don records that in all the years he knew Sir Norman and, and Pat Anderson, he never once heard a bitter word from either of them. Never once. All those ups and downs of life, the hardships and trial, not once did they say a bitter word. For two years after the death of Hugh, the wife, Pat, she couldn't talk about it, but not once did she ever complain of bitterness or resentment. When he was a very old man, uh, at which time his wife was totally incapacitated, Norman was asked to speak at a student gathering of 2,000 people in Wales. 
They asked him in his 80s to come and speak of his Christian faith. And he said, look, I don't speak anymore. My memory is not good enough to get up and speak, but I can answer some questions. So for almost an hour, he got up in stage in front of 2,000 students and answered questions about his experience of God across more than eight decades. And he testified that throughout all of his experiences of the goodness of God, that God had been good to him, that he was in control, and there was not one ounce of bitterness within this man. Apparently, there was not a dry eye in the whole room as he pointed to the God who was good and in control. As you consider the life stories of those two men, George and Norman, which one do you want to be? How will you respond to the trials of life? Do you want to be George and get bitter and twisted and walk away? Or do you want to be Norman, who grows in his love and knowledge more and more in the shape of his saviour? Now, before you answer too quickly, you need to understand it costs something to be Norman. But if you want to be Norman, then we need to listen to the word of God today that James brings us. Because this part of the word of God tells us exactly what we must know and do in order to navigate the trials of life. So we don't end up in discouragement and desperation. But we end up more like Jesus. So come with me to verse 2, James chapter 1. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters. Whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Trials, James tells us, grow us to be more like Jesus. Trials discourage, yes, they can, but trials grow. See, we naturally think that pain is bad and pleasure is good, right? Pleasure sounds good. Pain sounds bad. We we think that. But here James is saying we need to adjust the way we think about the world. He's saying that the pain of trials is for our good. He's saying even more than that. The pain of trials is necessary for our good. The pain of trials produce endurance. They help us to to keep going, to keep trusting in Jesus. They mature us. And you kind of see that in life, don't you? You see it in just the general nature of life. The mature person in life is someone who's been through the ups and downs of life. They've lived long enough to recognize that life is not all butterflies and roses. That there are hardships and that there are times of great joy. They've been a few rounds through life and that sets them up as mature There's nothing more arrogant than the young person who thinks they've seen it all and has a view of the world that says it's all great. But really, they've not seen the realities of life. Maturity comes from recognizing the ups and downs and walking through them. If you want to become mature as a Christian, if you want to endure to the end standing firm in Jesus, then you need to let God our Father train us, walk us, not around the trials of life, but through them. So that we might become mature and complete, enduring to the end. Think about it this way. If you're an athlete and you're training to go in a race, you don't sit at home training by sitting on the couch. That's not how you train to run a marathon. You're kind of like, oh, I'm watching these people on the marathon. It's Auckland Marathon Weekend at the moment. And as you can see, I haven't trained, nor am I there. (laughs) But you know, how crazy would it be? Like, oh yeah, I'm going to go and try and run that right now. It wouldn't last well. It wouldn't last very long. 
And so the athlete who's sitting there going, yeah, I'm training, as they drink their kind of Coke, no sugar, because that's healthy, right? So Coke, no sugar, and just watching, it's not going to train you. Now, in order to be trained for a marathon, you actually got to get out and run. You've got to stretch yourself. You've got to be prompted and provoked as you go through the, the training times. Uh, you need to put miles on the clock. You need to see your muscles grow, your endurance get used to it. Start smaller. You know, couch to 5K and then couch to 10K and then couch to who knows how long that is. <laughs> well, it's the same with the Christian life. If you want to endure in the Christian life, you need to trust God to train you through its trials. That he will lead you through the trials of life to make you more mature and complete. I want you to think about the hard times you've had so far in your life. You might be going through right now. What is your natural response to trials? Do they cause you to be bitter, angry, frustrated? Or do you see in them an opportunity for God to make you better? Do you notice the difference between bitter and better? have to work hard as an Australian. There is. One makes us more like Jesus. The other makes us more like Satan. We're going to see through the rest of the letter of James what it is to be a mature Christian. What being better as a Christian looks like and what that means for us. But here, as we start out this letter, the issue that we hit head on, face on, is this. How will you respond to trials? It's real. They're going to come. He doesn't say if trials come. He says when they come. There is a wave of suffering that has either hit you right now or it is coming. And we will go through that in this life. It's just life. It's the reality. And the question is, how will you respond? Are you ready? Will you be bitter at the trials that hit us? Or will you allow your father to make you better, more like Jesus? The older I get, and I'm not that old, I'm only 37. But the older I get, the more I see comfort creeping in as an idol for me. The more I feel like I just want to be comfortable. I don't want to talk about that issue anymore. It's just, I'd just rather not talk about it and just be a bit more comfortable in this area. I don't want that person to come and chat about this thing. I don't want to have to talk to the kids about that problem that they've got over there. I just want to be comfortable. I don't don't want to make more decisions. Decisions mean I've got to do stuff. I'm tired of decisions. I just want to sit, you know. I don't know if you experience something like that. You get tired of people complaining or interrupting or changing the course of things or thinking about what I've got to do and work and, oh, it's just too much. I just want to dot, dot, dot. Is that you too? Is your desire for comfort in life stopping you growing as a Christian? Because we don't allow the trials to shape us and mold us. Does comfort stop you from speaking about Jesus when you know it could hurt your reputation? Does comfort stop you from radically and generously giving towards Christian causes and the spread of the gospel? Does comfort stop you from going to connect group? Because look, Netflix, I just, the next one's out. I just need to watch it. I'm tired. Does comfort stop you serving others? Because, well, you do it throughout the week. It's similar. You just, I just want one less thing to do. James tells us that trials, hardship, they are for our good. We need them to be more like Jesus. Let me put it this way, and it's a little bit controversial, so bear with me. It's better to be in a bad marriage that drives you to Jesus than a good marriage where you idolize your partner. It's better to be broke 
with no money and trusting God than to be rich and ignore him. It's better to be sick and faithful to our true and living God than healthy and self-sufficient. Now, I'm not saying all these things are either ors, but if you had to choose, surely you're better off being in a marriage that well, you have to run to Jesus in and not having the money, and so you need to depend on him and, and, and being faithful in the sickness rather than self-sufficient. It's funny how all those things drive us to trust in the God who loves us more, yet we run from them. Now, don't hear me saying run towards the, all those bad marriage and being broke and being sick. No, no, God does those in his own training scheme for us all. But our mindset needs to be, am I going to trust you through this God? Am I going to trust you to shape me to be more like your son? Really? Trials will come. The question for us is, will you let them make you bitter or better? Now, I need to say that mindset, it's not easy. It's not easy. If you're here today and there's all, I don't know what could be going on for all of you, but there may be massive things going on. You're like, oh, that just sounds so simple. So rose-colored Rowan, great, I'll just go off and be happy, you know. But God doesn't do that to us. He doesn't just say, all right, you know, suck it up, pull out some stick like an army sergeant and say, right, back, off you go. Go, just get through this. He's a God of comfort. He's a father to us. He loves us and he gives us a phenomenal promise in this passage, the promise of wisdom. Have a look with me at this next verse, uh, verse 5 of James 1. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. The wise response to trials when they come is to let them make us better. When we find ourselves, though, getting bitter, What James is saying is we can come to our Father and ask for wisdom. Now, this is not just any kind of a blanket slate, like, God, please give me the most wisdom of everyone in the world so I can make these decisions and do that thing. This is not a promise to do that. You know, make me the wisest person in the world, because if we all pray that, it's not possible, okay? Right, you went that out. So what it is, though, is a promise that God will give us the wisdom required when we ask to recognize that trials are for our good. The wisdom is tied to recognizing what the trials we're in the midst of are for. God is promising us that he will give us the wisdom that we need. He sees us going through the trial. He's even organized the world so that that trial affects us positively so we'd be more like Jesus. And so he says in that, when life is hard and you're like, how do I think? I just want to get bitter. He says, pray, ask me, I'm your dad. It's like he's standing at the door with, 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 with like a father standing at the door with a little child going, I just want you to ask me and I'll help you. I'm just longing to help you. I'm longing to give you the tip you need. All you need to do is ask. And he's kind of hovering beside us, just waiting, walking alongside us to say, I'm here. I want to see you more like Jesus. But so often we act like a three-year-old kid. Well, I do. I think, I don't need God here. I don't say it like that. I just don't pray. I don't depend. I'm like, I can do this. And act like, imagine a three-year-old kid at the stove trying to boil some water. Like, get away, mum and dad. I'm sweet. I can boil this myself. And you're like, no, this is not great. You need to depend on me in this. And sometimes we just swat God away and say, I've got it. I've got it. Hear the love of our father who has brought these trials to us. He's saying, Trust me, come to me. I'm bringing you through this so you will depend on me, not you. 
I promise I will give you the wisdom you need to be able to see this for its good if only you would ask. Come and ask. Come and depend on our Heavenly Father. But James does give us a warning. Look at verse 6. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. So many people take this verse and twist it to mean, look, if you ask for something and you don't get it, it's because you didn't have enough faith. That's because you didn't depend on God enough. That's the problem. And so you just need to depend on God more. And it's kind of like you can arm twist God into giving you what you want if you've got enough faith. It's like I'm in a faith fight with God. I've got more faith in you. I'm going to make you do what I want you to do, God. And so you have more faith. And that's not what's going on here at all. He's saying, don't go, oh, I'd love the wisdom to see this your way, God. But then go, oh, stuff it. I'm not even going to go through it anyway. If you're going to ask God for wisdom, you need to not waste your time or his by going, ah, I'm not going to trust you in it. You've got to actually want him to carry you through it. You've got to ask him to shape our minds and our lives and our hearts to go, Lord, I know this is for my good. I know you're in control. Please help me through. Not, oh, help me get out of this so it's sweet and then I'm just back to normal and I don't need you again. We need to be dependent on him. Not double-minded, flicking back and forward. Oh, I want you, I don't want you. I want you, I don't want you. I need you today, I don't need you tomorrow. Dependent. Well, with that dependent mindset... Trusting God, asking for wisdom. James then shows us three things that give us great encouragement. He gives us the gift of perspective, the character of God, and the promise of life. You'll see those are the next points in your outline. I'm just going to do the second one first, though. So let's look at the character of God. Character of God. James 1.13. No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. It's so easy to fall into the wrong thinking and get bitter at God, thinking that he's trying to trip us up. Have you been there? Are you there? Well, there's hardships going on and you just want to shake the fist at God. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this to me? It's like you're trying to trip me over. It's like you're trying to make life harder and you're not for me. And it's so tempting to, to get there. But James says, our father never tempts us. Never. You have to throw that thought from your mind. Every time that thought comes to your mind, you know it's from Satan, not from God. Because he loves us like a father loves us. God does not have a dark side. He doesn't wake up one day and go, ah, I'm just going to put a little bit of pressure here on you. <laughs> and kind of stand back like we would with some sort of play ant mound thing. Well, maybe I would. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he doesn't do that. He doesn't even have an evil part of him. He is always for our good, always seeking our good. That's not what's going on. So you can't blame God. He is always operating to see us more like Jesus in everything. I remember when I was a kid playing basketball with my dad. 
And my, my dad's six foot four, so he's pretty tall. He's played basketball all the way through since college. Um, and he's been really good basketball. I, I used to go along to his games when I was younger in primary school. And if they were early enough, I'd get to sit and watch and play. I, I loved watching dad play basketball. He was, he was great. And occasionally we'd, we'd play. We had a basketball hoop up at home. And we'd play games with dad. Now, I'm not the tallest. And I wasn't even shorter when I was a kid, right? And he's six foot four. So he's tall. And, but I remember playing. And I remember the way we'd play. And dad would play in a way that he'd teach me things. He'd teach me how to do different bounces and to get around. And he was always trying to work in a way that I'd be encouraged, that I'd be able to get a basket occasionally, that I'd be able to get past him, but never, never so harsh that I could never win. And I noticed something about my playing. When I was playing my dad, I always wanted to win. I was doing everything I could to go, I'm going to show you I can get a basket. Right? And so I'd, I'd try and get past him, like do the elbow and kind of just kind of tread on his foot. And, you know, it, it was fun. And he's big. He could just pick me up and go and get over there and like put it in. But, but what I noticed was the whole way through, dad was trying to play for my good. He was trying to help me learn how to play basketball. He's always trying to help me to, to, to make wins. Whereas me, I was always trying to make him lose. See, dad was like God and I was like Satan. Right? Satan is always trying to tempt us to make us trip, to make us give in and fall and stumble and to say, you can't do this. But God, no, he's taking us through these trials to grow us, to make us better players in life, to help us to be more and more like Jesus. If you think God has a dark side, then you'll be tempted to think that he's going to give you more than you can bear. You'll be tempted to say, I know me better than you know me, God, and this is too much. You have gone too far. But the issue is never God. The issue is our own evil hearts. The heart of our problem is still the problem of the human heart. It's the issue, isn't it? Our human hearts are broken. We see things and we'd rather not trust God through them, but think we know a better way and we get out of it. Or we think we want to desire something different from what God wants for us. And so we just seek it on our own. We reject people. We, we, we sin in all sorts of different ways. Our own hearts are broken. And so when that thought comes in your head, not if, but when, when you start going, God, you've gone too far. This is too much. Just say these words, get behind me, Satan. And have a look at your heart and say, no, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you that you are for my good. And Lord, help me. Give me the wisdom to see how this is for my good and help me through this situation. Help me not to sin. Help me to take you at your word. We're drawn away by our own evil heart. You see it in relationships. Someone criticizes you. that They say something that you kind of feel hurts a bit. You wonder why they said it. You recognize that it's hurting you. And then you're like, well, why do they do this? And then you start attributing motive. They did that because they hate me. And you start creating this whole thing in your head. So the way you solve the hurt problem is you avoid them. You don't talk to them anymore. That's great. Don't have to deal with them. I just freeze them out of my life. But then you never speak to them again and you start thinking they still hate you. And then something else happens and you're going, they're doing that because they're still, you know, hating me. And then you start thinking the worst and then you start resenting them even more. Then you start demonizing them. And then you start gossiping about them and that person's doing all this stuff. And then, well, sin leads to death. James is saying, don't let our evil hearts turn the trials that we go through and even the wrong that happens that others do to us into something that will cause us to stumble and walk away. God has allowed it to happen so that we can take him at his word, so that we can find our identity in Christ and we can keep trusting him through it.
if we all owned our responses to others rather than blaming others, we'd be far less likely to give in to our sinful nature. God tests us like a trainer tests an athlete. He records their times. He throws curveballs at them. So when it comes to game day, they can stand to the end. That's what God is doing. That's the gift of the character of our God. But that's not all he gives us. He gives us the gift of perspective. The gift of perspective. Look at verse 9 of chapter 1. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with a scorching wind dries up the grass. Its flowers falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Trials are hard because often the world around us looks so rosy. It looks like everyone else is flourishing. And for here, the kind of financial hardship is, is, is on view. It can look like so many other people have got life sorted, like they've got money and life is just going so well. But God assures us all, rich and poor alike, that life is fleeting. There's nothing wrong with money. Money is a resource God has given each of us in varying measures to use for his glory and the spread of his kingdom. There's nothing wrong with money. The thing that's wrong with it is when we think that our identity is tied to it or we love it so much that it becomes our God. And so there's a sense where we can come in and think, oh, if I, if I don't have these finances right now, I don't have property or possessions, but God, this is so hard and I see friends around me making gains and I think, why, why is life so hard for us? God says, look to the horizon. The flowers you see will wither. The richness that you see in this world will not last. I heard last week that Paul Allen, the, the co-founder of Microsoft, he actually died. Uh, pretty young, in his 60s. But they say when he died, he was worth $20 billion. Now, Alan had been one of these people that had been very generous with all that, that he'd given away. And the news reported that he'd donated $95 million in his last year. Like, that's great. And they reported to see his generosity, but they got it wrong when they reported that he, that he donated $95 million in his last year. He donated all of it in his last year because none of it could go with him. He left it all behind to someone else to manage, to his sister. This life is not all there is. The only things we can take with us to the next life are the relationships with people who trust in Jesus and our relationship with God. Everything else crumbles and fades away at death's door. And so James tells us as we look through the trials of life, through the ups and downs, to get the perspective of God, the eternal perspective. That this world does not last. We are here for but a blink of an eyelid. So trust God. He knows what's in control. And more than that, he gives us something that does last. The promise of life. And the promise of life. Look with me at verse 12. Blessed is the one who endures trials. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. The trials come so that we might make it to the end, which does not end, so that we might live forever. At the end of life is the crown of life. It's, it's being crowned with, from, from the true and living God, saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. Welcome being a co-heir of Christ. Welcome to enjoying the rest of eternity with me and my people forever, where I am king 
where there's no more mourning or crying or pain, the old order of things is done away with, that lasts forever. That is what is to come. Just as Jesus rose from the dead, those of you who trust in Jesus will rise from the dead too if you endure to the end, dependent on him. The trials, they're not just something that we have to endure to get through. Sometimes people kind of liken the trials of life to childbirth. And who am I to speak on childbirth? I'm, I'm not, not a woman. Haven't, as Lachlan said, then, you know, I've never had a child myself. Although we have four kids, I was stood by Sarah as she birthed children. And in a weird circumstance, I was at a friend's. Anyway, I've, I've experienced five births. There you go. I don't really want to talk about that other one. It just happened that I, they wanted me to stay. There you go. But lots of people talk about trials. I'm just trying to get that image out of my head. Um, as like, okay, you go through labor, the labor pains, and it's just horrible labor pains for no good reason other than to get this thing out. And then, oh, there's a baby and it's joyful. That is not the way God is working here. He is saying the trials are shaping you for your good. They're not just here because it's painful and you need to get through to a good end. They are the thing that makes sure you enjoy the good end, that shape you into the likeness of Christ. That makes sure you're enduring, presented perfect in him. There is actually something good about the trials. Because they are shaping us day by day to be more like Jesus. Not just to get through, but to be like him. And that's why James says, blessed are the ones who endure trials. Happy are the ones who endure trials. Because they are being shaped to be more like Jesus. Now, we don't go, so the trial is good, Uh, but the trial shapes us in a good way. God uses it to shape us in a good way throughout all of life so that we might endure and be presented perfect on that last day. So James says, the very thing he started with in chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. My brothers and sisters, please hear this word to us. As trials come and go, God is saying to you today, consider them a great joy. Consider them pure joy, for without them you would not endure to the end. Your Father is shaping you and molding you and bringing you through because he loves you and cares for you. God loves you so much that he allows you to go through trials, so consider them great joy, pure joy. See, God loves us too much to hold back the trials that are necessary to grow us as Christians. I wonder, what do you pray for yourself? As you think about life and as you come to God in your prayer life, what do you ask him to do? What do you pray for your kids if you have kids or your grandchildren if you have grandchildren? Do we pray that God would take away the trials and the suffering and we'd have an easy and comfortable life? I want to put it to you today that we should pray for the wisdom to ask for just enough suffering that we become mature. For just enough rejection that we desire the approval of God, not man. For just enough loneliness that we cry out to God and are dependent on him. For just enough sorrow that we seek out the joy of the Lord. For just enough pain to appreciate the health he has given us in eternity with him. 
because of the character of our Father and his gifts of wisdom and of life, we can consider trials pure joy. They are necessary. They're for our good. They'll hurt. They'll be hard. But what a joy they are, for without them we would not endure. So Paul's message to us this morning and today as we start out this letter, as he fills in what the Christian mature life looks like in the coming weeks, the message this morning is this. Will you let the trials of life make you bitter or better? Let me pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We admit that if we were left on our own, we would not see the world the way you see it. We would fall over and stumble with the trials that we see and would give up. Without you, we'd be facing death and judgment and separation from your goodness forever. But we are so thankful that you have appeared, that Jesus has spoken your truth, and that you have written to us through James and reminded us of this great truth, that you work all things, all trials, to shape us and mold us, to be mature and complete and endure. So we ask that you would help us as a church to stand by one another, to pray for one another, to pray for the wisdom to see things your way. We are sorry, Lord, when we doubt you, when we blame you, when we become bitter. We ask that you would help us to trust you and experience the joy that comes from knowing our dad is doing everything that is perfect and right to see us as he wants us on that last day perfect in Jesus. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.